0: Welcome to the Drum History podcast. I am your host Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Dan Garza again for part two of our Paiste history episode. Welcome back, Dan.
1: Thanks. That's, I can't believe it's we're doing this again.
0: I know this is honestly it's very it's different than most other episodes because usually it's you know one and done, but I think Paiste's special, and I'm really really glad it's pretty cool to like uh, to do this where we've had. A week. Today is Saturday, November 20th. So this is only a couple days before we will release this. Um, but to see people's reaction, and I have gotten a lot of messages, um, a lot of cool stuff from people just saying how much they've enjoyed it. Um, because let's be honest, that was a long, <laughs> that was a long episode. Oh, yeah. So um oh, yeah, people are really interested in Piesty, and they as they should be. Um, it's neat to get this information out there, thanks to like Fritz and this long list of people who maybe will, you know, shout out at the end. But um, I think it's cool to finally put it all together. H- how are you feeling after part one is out in the world? Are you happy?
1: Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it, it, there's just so much information and listening to it. It was like, man, I'm going on forever. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten feedback. I've been working with Fritz over the last week. Uh, we've been focusing on 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 mostly pr- well trying to find something about pre-war feisty yeah uh some actual documentation or proof you know but yeah i've had a few people contact me and and offer some information which is really interesting just little tidbits here and there but definitely helps with with the whole timeline
0: sure um and you know maybe it's worth saying this too that like if you're listening to this right now and you didn't listen to part one um you just just know that like that all right so the first one was basically about the Origins of the family um, up through, you know, the different factories and the moving around Europe and the being refugees and um, the Ludwig connection, which um, on that note, I want to give a big shout out real quick, though, to uh, Jim Catalano, who on Facebook has been posting some really cool pictures of Bill Ludwig with the Peisty family going back when it was, you know, they were they were traveling together and um, really neat stuff. So thank you to Jim Catalano for his continued support uh who's he was a longtime ludwig employee and he's got a really cool episode um on his uh with with him on the show so yeah all right so um dan why don't we start off i know uh the benefit of having this part two is that we've gotten um a couple corrections one of them is from uh, norbert from Minel and um a couple you know different things where he loved the episode but there was a some stuff where he said hey this isn't 100 percent right Here's the correct information and I know you've got some other ones. So do you want to start with the the housekeeping section and we can sure. clean things up a little bit uh sure. that maybe got, you know, again we have the benefit to do it now. So I'll, I'll let you take that away.
1: So I you know I, I keep you know this is obviously a living breathing thing as far as trying to learn about the history of Pisces. and you know I I have several sources and it's really difficult for, to find anything Pre-war, pre-World War pre world war II, and honestly, there isn't anything that I could find. Yeah, what I did realize I made a major error in that Paiste was working with nickel silver w- way back in easily the 30s, if not the 20s, and the proof is that their gongs were made from nickel silver. Um, and it can't be understated, you know, how important Paiste's gongs were to their business and their success. Um, but my understanding is the Stan were always nickel silver. Um, I don't have an official start date and, and honestly, I don't think anybody really knows when Pisces started to make the Stan series. You know, the, the timeline that I have says 1932, but because there's no documentation, there's no way to prove that hundred mm-hmm. percent. The other thing I found too, of searching pre-war catalogs, all these different drum manufacturers, I found Zildjian Zilko's pre-war. And I thought, oh, man, they had a second line. And then I found out that wasn't a second line. Those were a Zildjian seconds or rejects that they just labeled Zilko and sold as a lower price symbol.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is sort of a gray area, too, because it's like, what's the definition of like a second line? Because that's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I think that's good to clarify that, that instead of it it being a, this is a second separate line that is created from scratch for this purpose, not just, oh, that one didn't quite make the grade or it's not the right, whatever. Um, So here, now it goes over here. It wasn't specifically created. Yeah. All right. So then uh, shall we discuss um, Norbert and the Meinl um, difference there?
1: Yes. Um, So basically my understanding is that the profile and record series uh were not the first b8 symbols that model produced they actually were producing b8 in the 70s um which i believe was the king beat series and they also released another model called the laser so you know i was definitely in error as far as vinyls history so i apologize for that
0: oh that's all right and again norbert was super nice and was like hey bart hope you're gonna have a good time at pace coming up which was fun that's my my. Uh... My basic recap was it was awesome and it was a great time it was good to see everyone there but um uh which i mentioned in the last episode but yeah then he was just you know here's a little bit of information um no big issue just wanted to give you some facts and uh again super nice so now i think we're good to just jump in and pick up the timeline right
1: yeah i was thinking if it's okay that we could do a real quick lightning round i love it of of, of factoids and and this would this would a lot of this is information I've picked up in the last week that doesn't really fit or was in the old part of the timeline. So I could go ahead and start with um, looking more into the relationship between Ludwig and Piesty. What I found is that um, traditionally in Europe, there is a city called, and I'm going to try to pronounce this here. It's called Mark Neukirchen in Southeastern Germany, right on the Czech border. And that was the center of production for musical instruments for centuries and they would have a huge music fair every year this goes back well in, well into the 1800s it was basically the european nam the 18th and 19th century nam for europe and all the major manufacturers went there including the zilgens now this would be the 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 family that produced k Zildjans mm-hmm. uh pre-war and um father Paiste, Mikhail, would definitely have gone there to sell his gongs and there isn't concrete proof, but you know speaking with, with this is something that Fritz brought up we're we're pretty certain that both Ludwig senior and Mikhail would have been there. they would have met they would have at least you know exchanged business cards, but they knew each other and the reason why this is important is because in the previous podcast, I mentioned that Robert Robert Peisty had mentioned in his interview that the Ludwig family had sent them care packages right after World War II. So they knew who the Peiste family was, and the only way that would have been possible is if they would have done business or known them before the war. So that kind of wraps up that little
0: tidbit. Yeah, good info.
1: Um, Another interesting factoid from the early 50s, and this was actually in Robert's interview, was that Father Peiste McHale had received a call from a salesman. This was probably right around early fifties when they started using their hammering machine. And he received a call from a salesman trying to sell them basically an automated machine that would produce the symbol. And I guess one fell swoop and probably would stamp it. And then sure. it had another function for hammering. And the salesman was trying to sell it to, to McHale. And he replied a machine for making symbols. You can forget that we don't make pots and pans. We make symbols. <laughs> And what ironic is the salesman that was trying to sell this, the the machine to uh, Father Paistee was Roland Meinl. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) The the founder of Meinl. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Cool. Okay, another tidbit. Um, The Peisty Drummer Service, which I mentioned briefly uh, uh, on the last podcast uh, with Robert, uh, was headed up by Pierre Fave, I believe is the correct pronunciation of his last name. And he was the driving force for decades behind that. I, I believe it was Robert's idea, and he basically started but Pierre was the one who headed that that project. Hmm. Pierre also was the lead symbol tester, from what I was told, for decades. He was the main symbol tester. There's also pictures of him in the old Ludwig documentation of when Ludwig went to visit Peisty. And pick out symbols. Pierre was there working with Robert Yeager, pulling the symbols out and explaining them to him. So he was like the number one like technical advisor hmm. for Pisces. Wow. Uh the the other person who who needs to be mentioned is Freddie Studer. And my understanding is that Freddie and Pierre were were key people as far as the um uh the development of new symbols. Uh my understanding, and this is new information I got, is that Pierre was responsible for cup chimes the bell uh extra heavy bell symbols and it goes on and on and on Mm. but those people are obviously key to to peisty's uh creative creativeness yeah another thing real quick is uh swiss metal as we spoke in the last podcast was originally called their their name was metal dornach ag Mm. and ag is the same thing as incorporated that was swiss metal's original name before they became Swiss metal, who produced, uh, I believe, B8 and B20 for Pisces up until 94. Hmm. Um, Weilandworks, Weilandworks, took over uh, the B8 production, and I found out through Fritz from a firsthand account, Fritz was in, at the Sabian plant in Canada, Weilandworks supplies B8 to Zildjian and Sabian for all their B8 symbols. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Hmm. <clears throat> wow man you've done more and more uh homework
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay but well, i've got one more sure. this is this is a this is an industry one so fritz is a a friend who is a huge bonham fan uh and this this german gentleman fritz told me was constantly badgering eric peisty about finding bonham's uh endorsement agreement and he badgered him for god knows probably years eric finally gave in and went in and went to the archives and found Bonham's um, endorsement agreement, the contract, and basically the inventory list of what symbols that they gave Bonham. When you go to Peiste's site and you see the picture of the endorsement and that inventory list, the reason why they they basically, not that they don't have it, but the reason why they can actually produce it is because this German Bonham fan uh, pestered Eric's you know, incessantly until he actually went and found it,
0: man, that is awesome. That's such history. That document, (laughs) (laughs) the,
1: the other thing that this, I don't know the gentleman's name Fritz does obviously. Um, he also pestered Pisces. This would have been around early two thousands. He pestered Pisces to, uh, do a special order and and to make him a set of giant beat symbols, which they were not producing at the time. So Pisces went ahead and did that. And one of the things I understood with Pisces is that if you do a special order, you have to order two of everything. Mm. So there's two complete sets. And right after they produce a symbol, Steve Jordan, who is famous because he used to be the drummer for David Letterman, and yeah. he's been a Pisces player for decades. He was in Notwell, and he saw the giant beats that had just been produced. And he went over, and he was talking to one of the Pisces guys. says, well, what is this? Let me play with these. So he really liked him. He said, Well, I want a set too. they're like, okay. So they made him a custom order set. He takes them back to LA, and then a bunch of his buddies see him. They're like, Well, we want them too. So they started doing all these custom orders for giant beats. That's how giant beats, the main reason why they're reissued was the demand. Wow. And it was an originally started by this German, big German Bonham fan. <laughs> Man,
0: that guy, uh, we we owe a lot of uh, you know, I mean, that's that's it's really cool though that something could be so you know, loved long ago and then brought back because some one one person, maybe there was a couple people involved. That's just benefit of the doubt, but like one person was so passionate that it actually they listened. So Peisty actually listened and 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 did it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um and and I have to say that I just saw Steve Jordan playing with the Rolling Stones in Detroit last in between our two episodes. And uh it was awesome. But for the sake of time, I'll talk about that <laughs> another time. Okay. But um all right, so now Let's hop in here uh, we I, I promise to everyone this episode is going to be shorter than an hour and a half like the last one. So <laughs> let's do our best here to keep it. You know, we got another 40 or 50 minutes. Um, so let's jump in here, Dan, and pick it up where we left off, which was uh, in the 1970s. And we kind of touched on getting into the 2002 series, which is very iconic with rock. So let's let's pick it up here and um, carry on the the Piesty timeline.
1: You got it. So the period of seventy seventy one, a lot of stuff happened, obviously, with the release of 2002s. The other thing that happened, which is really important, is what I call the great B8 shift of 1971. And that was Pisces dropped nickel silver from all their lower lines. And all their lower lines were switched over to being produced from B8. And that includes the Stambool, the Dixie, the Super, the Ludbrook Standard, the Stenopel, um, and you can actually find these symbols uh on German eBay. They they're still around hmm. and they're, they're interesting. I mean, they're actually decent sounding symbols now that they're made from B8, you know. From my personal perspective, I think they're more desirable. Yeah. Um, and this in I'm kind of inferring or or making the assumption that Pisces did this a lot of ways for economic reasons because of the fact that they were gonna, they were starting the production of 2002 and they would only need two alloys now instead of three mm-hmm. they would just need B20 and B8 uh which probably made production a little simpler
0: yeah cleaner
1: um robert knew that they needed a symbol to compete with the amplified music of the time which yep. was getting louder and louder and louder when we get into the 70 71 so that became the 2002 and it's safe to say that really the sound of 70s rock, virtually every English rock band, um, their drummer used Pisces cymbals. I mean, you could probably would be easier to name the drummers that didn't use 2002s throughout the 70s if they're an yeah. English band. Seriously. Or, even, or, or a European band, for that matter.
0: Which in in, you know, you kind of look back. I was obviously I mean, I was not born yet, but I you like you listen to the radio, you listen to this this amazing music, and it's like a lot of these bands were were European, British bands at the time that we all love now. But I mean, I'm looking on uh the symbol dot wiki Piste, you know, section though, and it's Bonham, Alex Van Halen, who's America, not born in America, but American by band. Um, Cozy Powell, Carl Palmer, Ian Pace, um, Carmine Apiece, uh, let's see, Ainsley Dunbar. Um, Keith Moon, right? Yeah. Um, Steve Smith, Andy Parker of UFO, uh, Graham Lear of Santana, Barry Moore Barlow with Jethro Tull. I mean, it just goes Charlie Watts. Um, it's just insane. Phil Rudd, Roger Taylor. I mean, these are the biggest names. This and Nick Mason, obviously, this had to be just like pretty amazing for the Peisty family. Because I remember when we when on, on part one, we were referring to a section of their history where um they were kind of down financially and they had to yeah. be making the like uh, chains for snow tires and all that stuff. Um But I mean, this explosion had to be good for business, obviously.
1: Yeah. And yeah. And, and they were, they were, it's funny because yeah, they didn't have much of a presence in the U S during this period of time. Um, it really isn't until 1975 when Rogers took over distribution mm. that I don't, I don't I don't know who distributed symbols in the US from 7071 up until 75 mm, if anybody. But in Europe it wasn't a problem, you know, obviously. And you know, this is the music I grew up on and and you know, when you listen back to all these bands, you realize it's virtually and most of them are Ludwig and Peisty, you know, they kind of go hand in hand.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which uh you know, I Always thought as a kid for some odd reason that like Bonham played before I really looked. I mean I'm talking like when I was like ten. I always thought Bonham played Zildjian for some odd reason. You almost think sometimes like you maybe you think everyone plays Ludwig because that's what the big name yeah. that you know every parent <laughs> knows and talks to you about. But but no, it's it's uh, amazing how how popular Paiste was. So um, and just to reiterate though, obviously these are B8 symbols, 2002s. Um, yep. If you could put in a couple words. Be like people loved these because of how clear and bright they were. Is that fair to say? Getting over the music, it cuts through. It's this new kind of rock music. Is that basically the the gist of it?
1: Yeah. B8, especially the way they developed the 2002s, you know, I mentioned in the last podcast, I think about um, in the old days, pennies were made out of copper. And if you take a copper penny and throw it against a hard surface, like a concrete floor, you hear this really characteristic high frequency ring. And that's that ring. I also, in the old days when you had telephones, they actually had telephone bells in them. You know, people have uh, on their cell phones the uh, ringtone of an old fashioned telephone. Sure. That telephone bell ring also reminded me of that high frequency ring that 2002s in particular have. Mm. And you could hear it and that really cuts through. And there's this sweetness to the characteristics that you could hear, you know that cuts through all the guitars and vocals and keyboards and God knows what that comes out up top. That really sounds really sweet.
0: Yeah. That's you know? a great way to put it.
1: If I could back up a little bit, this, this is just a little, sure. little tidbits of information. One thing that's important. That's, that's really contested is uh Peiste's serial numbers. Okay. And this is, this is something I see constantly. And I've actually spent a lot of time trying to understand and gather data. Um, Pisces did not, apply serial numbers to their symbols until 1972 people constantly say well they did it in 1970 because the serial numbers got a zero on it mm. now that's a that's a 1980 serial number um there was oh, also a transition period um in 71 the very early 2002s didn't have serial numbers and they also didn't have the 2002 name on them it just had peisty stamped on them and that's mm. listed on the wiki and 602s had the same thing where they just had the name Pisces, and it did not say Formula 602 above it. Gotcha. Um, yeah. That's what you call the, the transition labels or the transition symbols. Sure. But it's, import- it's important to understand because, you know, Pisces started applying serial numbers in 72, and they were the only ones. I mean, I, I, have, I don't have the data, but my understanding is Zildjian didn't start doing serial numbers until the mid-'90s, if that wow. Wow. So the nice thing is, is that you can actually date the top line Piesties, mainly 602s and 2002s at the lower lines. It looks like more mid 70s when they started to apply serial numbers. It was hit and miss.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's good to know. Now in this modern time of like, I don't know, like, you know, hindsight is 2020. It's like, yeah, of course you have to have a serial number because these things are going to go out there and they're going to be valuable and people will want them. But it's it's that's good to know for for dating purposes.
1: There's other things happening too. I mean, if we stick with the timeline, seventy one ish was um, the uh, creation of the dark ride with the, with the uh, cooperation of John Heisman and Jack DeGinnett. Um This is interesting in that they, in a lot of ways, were trying to reproduce the old K sound. So you've got a symbol that's heavily hammered and much darker sounding than. The standard 602s, because this was based on a 602 symbol.
0: Yeah,
1: um, this is considered, from my understanding, the most valuable Piasty ever made.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. Uh, especially the Dark Ride version. Um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this ended up developing a whole series called the Sound Creation series, which in 1978, which is basically, uh, you know, Piasty's version of. Hmm would be their their K Zildjian's in a lot of ways. Most of the symbols were heavily hammered and much darker sounding. Hmm. And, you know, it should be noted that this was done in 78 and released in 78 before Zildjian officially revamped or restarted their K Zildjian line in
0: 1982. Hmm, wow. Even more, uh, who did it first kind of... Uh...
1: Yeah, so <laughs> Pisces was definitely ahead of the curve yeah. on that.
0: Yeah. Cool. All right, so chugging along, then... um What else in the early 70s?
1: Well, at some point, I think we're going to have to talk about Bonham. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. So let's keep it. (laughs) We could spend an episode on Bonham. So let's let's touch on Bonham a little bit. I mean, that's just obviously one of the most influential drummers in the world. I mean, uh, of all time to this day. So so the fact that he played Piesty, boy, that that had to be that's their Ringo, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I. Again, I've had people recently in the last few weeks send me information, which has been really helpful. There is a section on the wiki page under the giant beat symbols at the very bottom that has a whole section with Bonham's endorsement agreement and his inventory list that kind of lays out, um, you know, what he played and when he played it. And a mm. lot of this is with the help of a gentleman by the name of George Flutus, who is on uh, YouTube, who's a fantastic drummer, and he's done all this research um, he plays virtually every Zeppelin song, and he plays them very, very well. But he's pointed out with pictures from particular eras what Bonham was playing, and it's very interesting. Uh, in a nutshell, Bonham actually played Giant Beats on more albums than he did 2002. Hmm, interesting. With, which I found very interesting. I mean, growing yeah. up, I always thought it was just 2002, 2002, 2002. And it turns out that he played Giant Beats all the way up Uh, through Houses of the Holy. And uh, he was using Formula 602 hi-hats on all those early albums. Um, Led Zeppelin 1 is really kind of anybody's guess because there just isn't any information as far as any real picture evidence around that time. It's hard to tell. Hmm. But most people agree that it's a mixture of 602, Giant Beats, and Zildjans. Um, We also think that there was an influence from Ludwig because he got his... uh, his uh clear maple set or uh a thermal gloss i think is referred mm-hmm. to it um in s- early 69 i believe with the help of carmine of course
0: yep 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 <laughs>
1: and it's believed that most likely ludwig gave him a set of 602s at that time to go along with the set because at that point um, they would have had them yeah yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. and they were selling and, and distributing them yeah um, but there's also there's also proof, and uh, there's actually an interview with Freddie Studer, who mentions that Bonham had come to the factory in very early 1970, which is it, it was on his inventory list, where you see he picked up a full set of Giant Beats. Hmm. Um, there's also an interview I read with Cozy Powell, where he mentioned that both him and Bonham were buddies in the late 60s, and they were on the, the same club circuit together playing in different bands. And they both found Giant Beats in the late 60s and were playing them. And the interesting thing they said is that they had problems with cracking their Zildjians. So when they started using Giant Beats, they found that they didn't have that that issue as much or at all. And that was one of the big advantages.
0: Hmm, yeah, because um, these are heavy hitting, I mean it's a new world of yeah. music, you know. It, wow.
1: My understanding also is that um Bonham was disappointed when they discontinued Giant Beats in 72 slash early 73. And he continued to play them, and he could. He especially liked his ride. And he continued to use that ride through physical graffiti. So when you listen to the actual tracks recorded for that album, he's using 2002s, but he's still using his giant beat ride. And he toured with it. So when you look at the 75 tour, the physical graffiti tour, he's still using his giant beat ride. Mm. And it's not until Presence that he's using all 2002s. Wow. That's awesome. And and a six oh two medium ride thrown in here or there. Man,
0: just such a cool I don't know. Something about that that sound of Zeppelin is is peisty, you know? Yeah. For as far as the oh, drums yeah. go. That's that's so cool to know. Um all right. And then like I said, there there will be at some point, I don't know when, but there, there will be a full Bonham episode without a doubt. Um, but yeah. Was was he like I mean, you know, was he the top dog, really? I mean, I guess I guess also we kind of, like, make him a legend more and more after the fact, you know, because he's been gone for so long. But did they realize at Pisty, do you think at that time that, like, this guy is a big deal and we need to take care of him? Um, was he kind of the big dog on the endorser list?
1: I think a lot of it had to do with the band.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course.
1: The one thing, obviously, that younger listeners can't really relate to is that I mean, really it wasn't until the nineties that you didn't have access to these bands and Mm -hmm. really the only way, and this is my experience as a kid was the only way that you would hear these bands on the radio and you'd have to wait till the song was over. Then a DJ would announce who it was and like what the name of the song was. And if you're lucky, what album it was on. And I would have to go to the record store to find the album if I wanted to listen to that song and buy the album, obviously. Yeah, but the other thing is i would go to the supermarket and look for either cream or circus magazines because mm-hmm. that was the only way that you'd be able to actually see the band see what they look like and as all drummers know it's like what was the guy playing i mean that's you know all the, your 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 idols what was he playing so you, i would page through the new issue of cream or circus looking for zeppelin pictures there was a zeppelin article and it's like you know, where's the pictures of Bonham? It's like, I don't care about Plant or Page. I want to see the Bonham pictures. And usually you would see part of a set from a shot taken of Robert Plant, you know, standing yeah. in front of a set. It's like, get out of the way. I want to see Bonham's <laughs> set, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. So,
1: so yeah. I mean, it was – it was Zeppelin had this aura about them. Um, I've read a couple of different biographies. They were very groundbreaking uh, in that – um, they changed the way business was done in the industry, especially uh, with performing live. Um, but more importantly, they didn't do interviews. They didn't release singles. There was only was – Zeppelin only ever re, uh, uh, released one single. Uh, but the main thing was that they had really bad um, reception from the press very early on, Rolling Stone. And they decided that they weren't going to cater to the media – so they were non-existent so they became this very mythical band and i think that really drove their the aura about them and their popularity the fact that they were so inaccessible yeah and that really sure. drove a, a lot of their popularity the fact that they were that you just you didn't know anything about them and there were there were never no interviews you know all you saw were pictures of magazines so for young fans you know they had a rabid following so i'm sure Peisty in some form or manner, knew about that. Obviously, they were very popular in Europe, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, Obviously, they had had a lot of other top endorsees, but as far as volume, the amount of albums sold, or the amount of tickets sold for concerts, you know, Zeppelin was number one. Yeah,
0: for sure, which is important.
1: Especially in the U.S.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which, perfect segue... Getting back to the U.S. distribution, let's talk about Rogers and uh, which who was owned by CBS. Yeah, and it's interesting, kind of reading on the wiki here, talking about how part of the deal was Peisty would distribute Rogers drums in Switzerland. So there was a bit of a uh, back and forth because these are such distant places where they needed help, obviously to have feet on the ground in those places so it makes sense. Let's let's talk about the um distribution here a little bit. How did that all go?
1: Well, I, I could tell you really from a personal perspective because this is when I started playing, you know, I started playing the drums in 78 and I got my first Paiste in 79. I got a 404 6 inch crash and my experience and also from looking at catalogs and whatnot, um Rogers first listed 2002s in their 76 catalog so initially they only offered 2002s um as you get later into the 70s um you'll see that they do offer sound creations and by 78 which is when uh the Dixie and Istanbul are are discontinued they basically morphed into the 505 and the 404 um Rogers did offer the 404 and that's where I came in Mm. but what was very interesting is once I started to work on the wiki and started to contact people in Europe and make friends and this and that, I found that there was all these symbols that were available in Europe that we never got, you know? I mean, we never we never got Stambools or Dixies here in the U.S., let alone, I mean, what we got was through Ludwig, which would have been the standard, where they also produced an even less expensive line called the Stenopal mm-hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s, but that was it. Now, Rogers, for whatever reason, didn't distribute 602s in the U.S. Uh, on uh, one of their price lists from 1980, they list the 602s as a special order, and it takes a 100-day turnaround to, de- to basically deliver the symbol. Um, so the, the selection was limited. Even the sizes available of 2002s were limited in the U.S. compared to what they had in Europe. Hmm. So th- Rogers still did very well as far as the volume of of the amount of symbols they sold, obviously. Yeah, um yeah. I I I don't really know why they stopped. I would assume it was because Pistey came to the realization of, well, geez, you know, if we're doing this well in the US, we might as well set up a distribution center and do it ourselves, which would make a lot of sense. Which is yeah. what they what they did in 1981.
0: Yeah, which there's something, you know, it's sort of going down the same path. Obviously it didn't end the same way, but with Ludwig about kind of Latching on a little bit to a successful drum company to get, you know, reach a wider audience and have the distribution and stuff. But but yeah, I guess at that point with their their it was different than the earlier Ludwig distribution, obviously, because they were bigger and more well-known with these bands. So they probably did feel more confident to take that step out on their own um, yeah. to, you know, we, we can do this on our own. Hmm.
1: And I think by the late 70s, Paisley was doing pretty well with the 2002s yeah. um, this is I don't have the source I honestly can't remember where this where the statement came from but I did read a statement a long time ago that uh Rogers or CBS actually did more volume with Pisces than they did with Rogers drums in other words they sold more and and dollar wise more made more money off the the 2002s or gross dollars mm. than they did off of the actual Rogers drums. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah, but I mean, I kind of get <laughs> it. That's the case. In, in yeah. some,
0: in some like, I remember I, I used to work at Guitar Center in the drum department, and it was like, yeah, you sell more sticks than you do uh, Tama Bubinga drum sets. Yeah, <laughs> you know?
1: Like, yeah. people
0: are going to buy more cymbals than they are going to buy a full drum set. So, yeah. but I'm sure Rogers was kind of like, geez, why are we selling, you know, we, uh, this is, it's just an interesting uh, dichotomy, I guess you could say.
1: Here's another thing to keep in mind, too, is Number one, all there was was Zildjian and Piesty in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I do know I have a catalog, a Gretsch catalog from 1980, where they actually distribute UFIPs. And you see these little, when I was growing up, you would have these kind of funky off-brand symbols. I mean, one of the things that floated around is the kids in my neighborhood. I remember one kid had a Camber symbol. Mm -hmm. Another kid had a Corret symbol. But as far as entry-level symbols go, they were kind of, one, they weren't very good. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the major advantages Paiste had was even though it was only the 404, they were selling probably a lot of 404s in the U.S. Because, you know, Zildjian didn't have a second line of symbols, you know? Sure. They, all they had were A. Zildjians all through the 70s yeah. and the 60s. You know, I mean, I know that there was the ASCO plant and they did start to produce K's, I think, at 78. But my understanding is that the companies really weren't connected. I mean, Zildjian didn't offer K's in their catalog until around 82.
0: No, and I think uh, part of the split, uh, you know, again, sorry if I'm wrong. There's a lot of history. Uh, Part of the split between Robert and Armand was, I believe, one of them wanted to have a second less expensive line and the other one didn't. And I can't. Remember if exactly, I think it was Zildjian. um, I think Robert didn't want to have a cheaper line and, and Armin wanted to start to lower and get into that later in the eighties. Obviously was when that would be. This episode is brought to you by dream symbols. Dream symbols is continuing the tasting tour 2021 with a couple new dates. I wanted to let you guys know about Saturday, November 27th. They'll be at Portman's music superstore in Savannah, Georgia. If you haven't heard, they're going to have a lot of cool symbols in store they're going to have a member of the dream team on site and they'll be doing the recycling program. Go check it out. All right. So you mentioned this earlier, they were going to have their own distribution center. Um, yeah. And I just want to like, let's do a little check in on Europe. So we still have the German factory and we yeah. still have the Swiss factory. Correct.
1: That's correct. German factory is producing all the, all the B eight lines, in, including 2002s, but it's the domestic market. It's Germany, and most likely Central Europe only. Um, during that period, you'll you'll never see any 70s German Peistees in the U.S. Hmm. You know, it was only Switzerland. Switzerland was the only one that ex- exported their symbols to, to the U.S. or North America through that period. Now, I believe in the 80s, I think we did start to get some German lower-line Peistees symbols. Uh, gotcha. I, I would have to find actual find proof of it, which would be difficult, but – I believe that is the case yeah um but in Mm -hmm. the 70s no and and what's interesting is that um there's one gentleman that i that i actually contacted me and he has this enormous collection he's got all these 505s in stambools and he has all these 505s from the late 70s and i'm like i can't believe i didn't know they made all this you know (laughs) they they made a a marching china type wow you know and it's i'm looking at this and this is so cool it's like we never got this we we didn't get any marching symbols. We didn't get any hand symbols. There's a little excerpt at the bottom of the priceless saying hand symbols available on request, which basically means special order.
0: Yeah, sure. But they don't
1: tell you what's available. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know that you could get six or two concert sound edges.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's almost it kind of makes me think of like when you see like car companies who make cars in Europe that as here in America, we've never even heard of or seen or in, in like in Asia where it's like Ford or something. They make these things that literally we'll never see or drive yeah. ever. Um and it's yeah. it's super similar to that. Um so all right, while we're kinda like while we're over in Europe checking in, so we still Robert, Tumis, everyone, they're they're still running the show. The family is still very much in charge, right? No one has been yep. sold to another company or anything. It's still a family operation.
1: Now my, also one more thing about the German factory, my understanding is that um you know, Father Peistee passed away in sixty three and and Mother Peiste, which would be Robert and Tumas' mother, took over in some former manner of hmm. running the factory in Germany. And and I'm sure she in some ways at some point became more of a figurehead, but she lived in that little house next door to the factory until she passed away. Wow. So I I thought that was very interesting. It's, you know, all in the family.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly
1: right. My understanding is uh, when Eric visits a German factory, that's where he stays. Oh, cool. In his, in his, in, in grandmother's house.
0: Wow. That's (laughs) cool. All right, then let's pick up back there and kind of go from the seventies into the eighties and for, correct me if I'm missing anything, but let's maybe jump, um, let's hear about the distribution center or if there's any other lines along the way there.
1: Well, I already kind of mentioned it, but the sound creation series was released in 78. Yeah. And, it's kind of a mysterious series. It was a, it was very expensive. But I own several Sound Creation symbols. And I have to tell you that I absolutely love the Sound Creation series. And there's a lot of like really hardcore Sound Creation fans that that want Pisces to bring them back. But honestly, the 602 Modern Essentials series is really kind of the grandson of Sound Creation in a lot of ways. That was the same general intent was to make a more exotic darker uh you know deeper sounding type of symbol and again they're basic you know they're basically 602s that have been heavily hammered yeah and and you know and and the sound changed quite a bit but i i still love the sound creation series and um there's quite a few of them still around and the dark ride continued all the way through the 70s and 80s with the sound creation series and the Sun Creation series and the 602s were discontinued in 94 because uh, Swiss Metal ran into financial difficulties and they stopped producing B20. So, for mm. people out there wondering why they stopped producing these symbols, that's the reason why. Wow, you know, it's it's
0: just a you know, it's 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 obviously a thing. It's it's the symbol companies rely so much on the you know metal manufacturers that that controls a lot. There's a lot of forces at play that can, can affect, um, you know, the creation of a line or a symbol. It's like, well, we can't do it anymore. We lost our distributor. So that's, that's just yeah. an interesting side note.
1: Brea distribution center. So Brea is pretty much due East, a little Southeast of downtown Los Angeles. So I was really happy that they, uh, decided to, to, uh, Establish the distribution center here because it was close to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what I
1: what I can tell you from a personal perspective was I I grew up here. I moved back east for three years from 79 to 82. And then I, I was back here in the summer of 82. So Brea had really just got up and running by then. And I was buying my Pisces back east. And I had bought a 404. Then I moved up to the 2002s. And it was very difficult. I had to drive into Boston. Well, I had to get my dad or my parents to to drive into Boston in order to go to a music store to buy them. And the selection was pretty thin, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I very strongly remember when we moved out here in the summer of 82, the first thing I did was hit the music stores. And, of course, there was Guitar Center, which was the old school Guitar Center. I mean, it was ground zero for Pisces. And I can remember walking into the old Guitar Center before they moved it in Hollywood. And the drum section, the center of the drum section was this huge Pisces display, and they had a percussion set, if if uh, the, the listeners know what that is. And they had racks and racks of 2002s. And and, and this is when they did the, the color label shift yeah, in 81. So no more black labels, they're all colored labels. They had Green Label 505s, they had Brown Label 404s, they had a ton of 2002s, and oh my God, a 602. I saw my first 602 for the first time, you know? And yeah. I think they even had sound creations. And I knew what everything was because I had the catalogs, but I had never seen this stuff in person. Hmm. Um, this also coincides with what I like to call the, uh, the beginning of the hair metal phase, in LA. And the Sunset Strip, and that was ground zero for all those hair metal bands like Rat and and Quiet Riot and Motley Crue and Poison, all those bands all originated out of that area. And the majority of those guys all play Pisces. They all played 2002s. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Pisces had such a strong presence now in the US, and especially in LA, and now all of a sudden you've got MTV within about a year or less of Piesty uh, uh establishing a distribution center. So now all of a sudden you've got these drummers. You know, I vividly remember that rat video constantly playing on MTV, <laughs> and yeah. you can actually you can clearly see the drummers playing 2002s. You could see the the red label Piesty yeah. underneath the symbols. So You know they got free advertising you know they got huge exposure in the u.s because of that so totally again this is this is my this is my impression i really think that they they really blew up and in the u.s and the u.s is such a gigantic market totally another thing that's really really important if we back up just a year was pisces released the rude series in 1980 and that was you know their unlaid symbols and again that was Piesty, you know being innovative and producing these symbols for metal, punk rock, really, really loud music. Sure. And probably one of the, the main and endorsees that everybody knows about is Stuart Copeland. And he started using Rudes on Ghost of the Machine. And you could hear them. He's actually mixing 602s and Rudes, which is pretty crazy, but it works. And um that also was the incentive for the colored label era because Pisces had printed the big, white, rude label on the symbol, and that basically started the whole era of now they're going to actually print big logos on the symbols in color, which are easy to see. Totally. And it's free advertising.
0: Yeah, and and, oh my God, I mean, that the colored, I mean, I consider myself a bit of like an outsider. Again, you are like the Pisces expert, but I just have to say that the colored logos even getting further down a little bit, the the actual literally colored symbols, which I'm I'm sure we'll talk about, but those colors, I just think of that red 2002, and I I, I used to have a 2002 crash. Man, it just pops. It is such a unique, and that green on the 505, it's so just, yeah. it draws your eye to it, and it's like this is different, and and it makes sense that it's because, um, you know, there's there's music videos, there's all the stuff they know advertising, and that's that's really effective.
1: And another interesting note is Zildjian didn't start to label their symbols or put their logo, which they call the hollow logo on the bottom of their symbols mm-hmm. until I believe 1978, hmm. which Pisces started in 72.
0: Gotcha. Um,
1: and I believe, I think in 81-ish or 82 is when, when Zildjian went to the solid black logo in the bottom of the symbols. But my, again, this is my interpretation that I believe Pisces led the way again with this. And and they continued innovating. I mean, it was you know the percussion set was was absolutely. I, I remember seeing it, and it had the most odd things in it. You know, the roto sound and cup chimes and these little tiny gongs, a sound plate, this big rectangular piece of bronze. Um, you know, the bell symbol. Um, obviously the flat ride. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But the probably one of the biggest things that really defines the eighties is. The color, sound, symbols.
0: Yeah, for sure. God, that sticks out even today. You see, yeah, a, a lot of red. I, I always, I always typically see drummers with like red drums, red heads, red cymbals. And it's like it's super cool looking. I mean, I've never actually played them. Um, how do you think they 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 stand up um, quality wise? Because you s- someone might look at it and go like, "Oh, that's a gimmick. The symbol can't be that great." You know? H- how do you like them?
1: Well, my understanding is that there were two thousand twos, and you you could tell from the lathing because two thousand twos have a very distinct type of lathing where it's not it's it's asymmetrical. It gets tight and then it widens out, and then it gets tight again, then it widens out. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of like the the grooves of a record, and you have these kind of wide areas between songs, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, my understanding is is what uh, Pisces did was they had to produce an, an extra bright version. Of the 2002s and then they coated it with a lacquer for the color and that tended to to dampen the symbol and dull it down so they 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 pre-emphasized yeah. the brightness to counteract the fact that it was going to be muted and and, and duller sounding mm. and it was the era of mtv and you see all these new wave bands especially from england these guys who are playing color sounds and it just i mean it falls right in with the whole visual aspect of the big 80s with the hair and the big clothes and the makeup and you know everything was bright and shiny and new and neon and technology and you know yeah. it just it uh, another innovation you know yeah it, totally it really you know and they were wildly popular I mean they're all over the place I just I remember every week a new video would come out from from some new band and hey the guy's playing color sounds you know
0: yeah totally did they. Did the color with the lacquer, was the technology figured out right away? You know, I mean, did they have it buttoned up or did they start to like chip off or w- were they pretty, you know, uh,
1: durable? Uh, as far as I know, I mean, if, if you clean the civil, if you use an abrasive cleaner, the, the, uh, the lacquer will come off. You'll see okay. it. It'll start to work just like the labels themselves, the colored labels. Yes. If you use an abrasive cleaner, what will happen is the high spots will wear out first, which is areas that are between the lathing grooves that stick that stand proud or, or stick up higher mm-hmm. on the symbol. Those will be worn out first. So you'll see that on old color sounds. You have to be really careful not not use a really abrasive uh, cleaner. The other thing about the color sounds is again, I, I, a little quip that I saw was supposedly um, Nick Mason had asked Pisces to produce all white symbols for him. Cool. um, for the wall tour in 1980. Wow. Now I've never seen any pictures of that. of him playing white symbols, but supposedly that may have been the spark at the beginning of the idea of actually applying a colored lacquer to the symbols.
0: Yeah. I mean, Nick Mason, man, I mean, he, uh, having a big player like that could really pull some, uh, some weight. So, all right. So color and then, and then let's keep chugging along here. Cause we're, we're close. I mean, we're, we're in the eighties. I feel like it, it, you know, we're in the it says on the wiki here a couple times that we're we're still in the golden era the second golden era is that pretty true? I mean this would be the the rise of the two thousand twos and all that stuff is that kind of what constitutes the quote unquote golden era
1: yeah that's that's kind of my personal little saying that I like saying that you know because this is the era that i I grew up with and I was playing drums and you know. Again, this is pre Sabian. I mean, Sabian didn't really come onto the scene until 83, as I, you know, I I knew, but I found out the details from listening to your, your Andy Zildjian podcast, which is mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Thank
0: um, you.
1: But yeah, I, I, you know, it was, and, and, you know, again, my personal point of view was Zildjian was kind of resting on their laurels and Pisces had all these, you know, new young bands and, and, the music style had changed, the look had changed, and Pisces was right there, you know, right, right in the moment, you know, supplying what what needed, what, what the you know new new bands wanted or needed. Um, yeah, totally. One of the one of the big things that happened too during this era, if, if we go to '86, is what I call the Great Phase Out, and that is when Pisces did a major shift and and discontinued a, a whole bunch of their lines and. and In some ways, they semi-discontinued the 2002. But there's a story I have behind this. And again, you kind of have to be around my age. A lot of younger listeners don't realize that there used to be a different Coke.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And there was in in 85, I was working in a liquor store and the new Coke came out. And what what, uh, Coca-Cola had determined that people needed a new flavor. And there was all this competition. They used to do these taste tests with Pepsi, and how everybody preferred Coke. But for whatever reason, they decided, their marketing department over overage decided, you know what, we need a new flavor. We're going to retire the quote-unquote old Coke, and we're going to come up with the new Coke. Well, the new Coke was softer tasting. It didn't have the snap that the old Coke had, and it failed miserably. Now, there's a parallel to that with the 3000 line. And... The 3000 was supposed to be the replacement or, or was the replacement for the 2002. And in Robert's interview, he talks about how he didn't think the 2002 would last into the 80s. Mm. And they were always striving for new sounds and new development. And he felt at that time that it was time to, to design a new symbol to replace the 2002 to keep up with the current music trends. So the three thousand was very similar mm. to the two thousand two, and I actually owned one along with all my two thousand two. So I was able to do an AB comparison every time I played played the drums. And what I noticed was it was a more aggressive sounding cymbal. It had a stronger mid range. Um, they had larger bells relative to the two thousand twos, and it had this odd lathing that was very flat and shallow compared to the the deeper grooves you would see on the two thousand two, and. The 3000 kind of really went the same way as the new Coke. You know, people, I'm sure they were popular, but what happened was that that as soon as the 3000 came out, there was this big demand for 2002s. And Pisces was trying to move away from the 2002 and focus their production on the 3000. They couldn't because people kept asking for 2002s. Yeah. So the 2002 continued through that whole period while the 3000... The 2,000, the 1,400, and the the 200s were produced. The other factor that was part of this was, and again, this was an interview I read with either Robert Tumas, was the 404 and the 505, especially the 505, was too expensive to produce. Um, The 505, production-wise, is so close to the 2002 that I'm making the educated guess that Piesty was not making any money off of it, or maybe even losing money. The, the, the amount of labor involved to produce that symbol was almost the same amount of labor it took to produce in 2002 yet. In the catalog, they were 30% cheaper.
0: Yeah, so it just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. And again, remember, these symbols, they're, they're hammered. They're machine hammered. They're manually machine hammered into shape. So they have the same manufacturing process as the 2002s, the 602s, and the Sound Creations. You know, the big difference is the amount of lathing, you know, there's little things here and there that they will will omit to bring the amount of labor down to reduce the cost. But with the 505, they're just, you know, they would have to raise the price a substantial amount. So instead, what they did was they transitioned to this new series and the 1000 was supposed to be the replacement for the 505. But construction wise, the two thousand was really the five hundred five. Hmm. But the two thousand was more expensive. If that makes sense,
0: it's it's funny because it's just a ton of numbers. But I think uh, yeah. we it does make sense. I mean, it's it it makes me think too with like the whole taking the two thousand twos away and thinking we gotta innovate. That can sometimes be the. Uh, the double-edged sword of being such an innovative company where it's like you're doing, you know, the color sound symbols and you're doing all these things. And the other companies are kind of copying you a couple of years later to, to keep up with you. But it's almost like you can't forget what people really like with your classic lines like the 2002 and such, you know, where it's like, don't take them away. Keep them going.
1: One of the other driving forces, too, is my understanding is that 2002 sales numbers would start to drop. Hmm. So, you know, Pisces looks at their sales numbers and said, okay, well, 2002s is losing popularity. You know, it, it's not fitting with, with the times, with the styles of music that are out now. So let's develop something new. So they develop something new and release it. And then the customers are like, well, wait a second. We, we like 2002s. We, you know, we yeah. want to keep, we want to keep, you know, don't, don't discontinue them. So all of a sudden, the man shoots way back up again. So the price says, okay, uh, geez. All right, well, we got to go back.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, it's funny. Cause I think that same thing, I, I remember listening to some podcast or something about the history of Coke. And, um, it talked about that, about how once new Coke went away and old Coke came back, numbers skyrocketed where it's like, it's almost like a, a, you create a, uh, like a rush on the market with your own prop taking your, your popular product away and then yeah. bringing it back it's it's that's got to be a business um tactic i don't I don't think they did that as much as like a you know just a lucky happenstance of like oh no, it's back, and then they sell a bunch, but um definitely an interesting further parallel to new coke um but yeah so all right on your timeline here eighty six is really kind of where it stops, and even on um Peiste's website, it goes eighty one to today it basically says um uh, looking at t- Peistey's history on their website, the company gains a firm foothold in the world's largest musical instrument market with the establishment of Peistey's America uh, P- of Peistey America in California, which we talked about. Tumis's son Eric Peistey is sent there in the late '80s to look after Peistey's U.S. operations. In 2003, Eric assumes overall responsibility for the family's business. So Eric Peistey gets involved um, in the '80s and then takes over in 03, which. It's in the it's in the family. Who who is Eric's? Uh, you may have said this before, but who who is Eric's father?
1: He's a son of Tumas. Okay. Or I, I was recently contacted, and and somebody mentioned that it the traditional pronunciation pronunciation is Tomas.
0: Thomas. Thomas. Okay. okay. So I don't know which is correct. So we can go either way. Yeah, both. Yeah, but that's um, good to say them both.
1: The one thing that is really important with the with the timeline um, post eighty six was the the Pisces Signature Series, and the Signature Alloy. Mm-hmm. And um, again, this was a, another innovation with Robert where they were starting to see issues with Swiss metal in the 80s as far as, I, I believe, their 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 financial status. Um, again, I can't be more specific than that, but I think they were kind of on shape, shaky ground by the time you get to the mid to late 80s. yeah. So that may have been part of an incentive uh, for Robert to develop a bespoke uh, new alloy. And um, the the intention was to replace the B20 symbols and specifically the 602, but also to make something new that was quote-unquote better, you know, than the 602 and maybe take the best qualities of B8 and B20 and combine them into a new alloy, which will give you both, you know, the, the, the classic sound of B20 and then the nice high end that B8 has. Hmm. Uh, and you end up with really what is B15. I mean, I've looked at the patent for, for the signature alloy and they state something like 14.8 to 15.2% 10. So it's basically B15.
0: Which you don't, um, he- you don't hear about those different, uh, you hear about B8 and you're about B20. You hear about b 20 you do not hear about the other yeah bees you know
1: so again i mean this is you know peisty innovation it's it's amazing that that um you know that they would come up with something like this and the story goes that robert had tried several different mixtures uh you know b10 b12 b15 you know yada 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 and he found that he liked the sonic qualities of the b15 alloy the best You know, they they were producing, they would make a symbol out of these different alloys. And this is what what he really liked. So he decided to go with this. Now, my understanding, not to get too technical, is if you stay below B12, which is 12% uh, tin, the alloy is what's called single phase, which means that the copper and tin are completely mixed together. And there's there's no uh, issues with rolling, which is... The advantage of B8 and the fact that it can be rolled cold and it's relatively easy to produce. Mm. But once you get above B12, you get into the B, B20 range where you have to do all this heating and cooling and tempering and then reheating to roll it and then reheat it. Every time you roll it, you have to heat it up and be very careful with the, with the temperatures and, and very precise so B15 falls into this range. It's somewhere in between that they still need to have a hot rolling stage at some point, and roll it hot, but the last stage you can roll it cold. And I have this crazy story from Fritz where Fritz was actually involved with Weiland Works, who was producing the B15 and they originally had the B15 produced, uh, I believe in the Czech Republic. And they had all these issues. And their very early signatures were actually produced with this alloy. And they had a lot of cracking problems. Mm. And they moved the production to Weiland in Germany. And they did some tweaking of how they produced the alloy. And they are able to produce an alloy that was much more uh, stable and reliable. But Fritz told me the final process when they do the last cold rolling stages, the alloy actually cracks on the surface. You get the surface cracking. And what they have to do is they have to machine or grind off 20% from each side
0: mm,
1: to, wow. to, to grind down past the cracking area. <laughs> so you lose 40% of your material right off the top before you're actually even able to make a symbol out of it. So Jeez. he said, this is the reason why signatures were so expensive, especially in the beginning when they were released, was the cost to produce the alloy was, re- it was more expensive than B20, actually. Now the question wow. is, why? Why would they do this? Well, because B-15 had the sound that Robert wanted. This is what he wanted. And it really was, you have to produce this at any cost because this is, this is what works. So, you know, the next time you're playing any kind of B-15 symbol, you know, if it's a traditional or a signature or anything like that, just know that there was a lot of hard work in producing that symbol and that alloy. Totally, you know, it's, very, it's very special.
0: Yeah, even the the development of figuring that out of like how to how much to shave off and all this stuff is just it's just insane. But that's Peisty in a nutshell, right there. Um, yeah,
1: well, and and their partner Wyland Works, who took over with the producing of of all their alloys. Yeah, um, yeah, totally has, has has been very good. And that's also you know part of the industry. The fact that they're using you know a large you know foundry mill that has a lot of experience, and it's not a, a home brew type of production they're using what the best term could be is the scientific process so they're very very accurate with their their production and the process and very consistent with that alloy
0: yeah totally man um so we're getting obviously close to the end here and uh i've i've promised people you we won't have another (laughs) as much as people might want uh, three hours total of Piesty history. We'll keep it relatively uh, shorter. But so talk a little bit about, as we wrap up, the the, the new B20. And I know our friend uh, Fritz Steger was involved in it. So what's the deal with that?
1: So um, I believe it was, was it 2011 when the new 602s were released? I could be wrong on that, mm-hmm. on the release date. And then of course there's Vinnie Cagliutta with with the Modern Essentials, which... I was blown away when I saw that. I mean, I couldn't believe they got, they got Vinny.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Paiste got Vinny. I can't believe this. <laughs> you yeah. know, they might as well have gotten Buddy Rich to endorse them.
0: You yeah, know? totally. Really.
1: So my understanding from talking to uh, Fritz, he actually was, had firsthand involvement with this. Um, Weiland Works was producing B8 for Paiste. You know, Swiss Metal was gone by 94. Um, was out of the picture. And Wyland Works is producing a B8, and they're producing the B15 for Peistee. And Wyland, on their own, decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to take a run of producing B20, and we're going to offer it to all the, the modern symbol companies, which would have been Minel, Peisty, Sabian, and Zildjian. So there was a book published in the 1937 by a doctor, a, a PhD. Uh, uh, um, a metallurgist who did a scientific analysis and research of the B, how how you produce B20, you know, the temperature it's melted, how it's mixed, what temperatures you need to heat the material to before you roll it, how quickly you cool it, you know, I mean, and you know how the Germans are. I mean, they're they're so good with industry and so specific with these types of things. So he basically – wrote a recipe book, a cookbook on how to make B-20. Hmm. So this is common knowledge, I guess, in the industry. And Weiland went through the book, and they had their own metallurgist, and they produced B-20 again, according to the cookbook. So they would produce this, quote-unquote, perfect form of B-20. And from conversations with Fritz and his conversations with Weiland works, he found that the reason why 602s had a particular sound and they don't sound like Zildzman and Sabian's A lot of it has to do with the manufacturing of the alloy itself. That is one of the big factors in why 602s sound the way they do. And as Fritz referred to it as the quote-unquote hi-fi sound. And a lot Mm of that is 602s have that sweet, crisp high end that Zildjian and Sabians don't have. So long story short, um, Weiland starts to shop around the B20, and they take it to Peistee. And, you know, Pisces is just about to start the production of the Master Series. So they've got uh, a foundries in Turkey that are actually producing the B20 form. So they're not interested. So Weiland at some point uh, uh, contacts Fritz. And I believe Fritz helps Weiland contact Minel. And Fritz brings some blanks to Minel and says, hey, check this out. Here's a new B20 that. Uh, that Weiland is producing. And Mino says, oh, this is interesting. Okay, let's check it out. And Mino produced, I believe in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, what was called the M series. And that was their B20 line that they produced from Mino's B20 alloy. Fritz went to do his interview with Robert Paiste, I believe in 2006, and he brought the blanks with him, the, the B20 blanks hmm. from, from uh, Works. And I don't know exactly change, but Fritz told me that while well, or before or during the conversation, he mentioned to Robert, hey, by the way, I've got these B20 blanks. And Robert says, well, what are you talking about? He said, let me show them to you. So Robert was very interested. He says, yes, leave them with me. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. he, he liked them. He, Fritz told me there were some minor changes they made, but that was the basis for the Reissue 602s and the Modern Essentials. Now, Weiland also shopped that B20 to uh, Sabian and Zildjian. And Sabian and Zildjian both turned them down. And to quote Fritz, Sabian and Zildjian told Weiland, we're not interested because we could produce it here cheaper. Which mm. makes sense because it's, it's very expensive to produce things in, in, yeah. in Germany. Yeah. You know, the labor costs and whatnot. And obviously, Weiland's going to mark it up. But it would be funny that either zildjian and or sabian if they decided to use that b20 they would use the same alloy that were being was being used both by model and peisty i thought it would be that would be very funny that would be a very interesting (laughs) scenario
0: (laughs) yeah oh my god wow it's so cool how involved fritz is and you know has been with this stuff i mean it just it just goes to show that someone like him i feel lucky that uh he has provided so much information and along with all the other people we've, we've mentioned in the first episode um, really to make these, this history possible because it's, it's, it's kind of tough to put it all together. And, and like we did with the opening uh, housekeeping kind of thing of this, um, yeah. of it's still sort of evolving and inf- new information is coming out um, along the way. So man, it's just unbelievable. And And as people are probably figuring out that it's like, we were pretty heavy on the early, you know, era and then, you know, early nineteen hundreds through, you know, uh the eighties. And um there's still I'm sure there's still plenty of other stuff to cover, but really we're we're kind of that's kind of our sweet spot is up till like nineties and stuff. And you just obviously touched about on, on later stuff there, but um Yeah. It it's just uh I think it it's fair to say that it was business as usual then and with Eric Peisty running the company, everything seems to be going very, very smoothly and they're just an absolutely dominant um force in the symbol world today. I mean there's no denying that.
1: Yeah, and and you know they continue to innovate. I mean I, I'm <laughs> it's hard for me to keep track of of um all the different lines they produce and I mean it's that's the Peisty way. You know Peisty has always found a way yeah. um to be innovative and and creative and it's you know it just never ceases to amaze me and and they're still catering to the modern taste of musicians what what musicians are interested in and you see that with the masters and 20 series where they've got you know very dark very earthy sounded cymbals which people are really into now they've got a lot of, of really trashy noise making type of cymbals with like pstx yeah um you know i love the fact that they're producing giant beats and 602s and and the modern essential 602s and Obviously, they're still producing two thousand twos. You know those are all, all my old school favorites. So you know i'm I'm glad that Peisty really has something to offer to literally everybody
0: absolutely. That's a great way to you put know? it. There's something for everyone. Um so yeah. maybe if you're listening to this and you are like a player of one of the other brands, um go out and get some Peisty symbols um because obviously they're they're unbelievable. But I think most people have played them and know just how great they are. Um, but Cool. Well, Dan, let's tell people here. Um, well, first off, thanks to everyone who's listened to both episodes all the way through. Um, that's a whole lot of Peisty content. You're like at over two and a half, almost three hours of Peisty history, which I think is, is really cool. I was, like I said, very surprised at like the day I released it, how many people were like, this episode was great. Can't wait for part two. Um, (laughs) so they, they seemed to, everyone seemed to enjoy it. So I hope everyone liked this one too. Um, uh, let's just tell people, I think the best way to, to see a lot of your documentation of all this would be on symbol dot wiki, um, and click the Piesty tab there and you can go yes. in and see a lot of this. Um, yeah, and it's pretty obvious, but you can go to Piesty.com dot com, And then you can see, you know, everything Piesty doing today. Um, and I've met a few folks at Piesty, like I mentioned in the first one, um, and they're just super nice people, and I'm I'm just so happy that I could finally do an episode um, about Paisty itself.
1: A, a word about the wiki. Um, the one thing I want to mention, and I mentioned at the beginning of the pot, of this part of the podcast, is you know the wiki is ever expanding, ever growing, and there's always updates and changes. So uh, you know, obviously, I try to be as accurate as possible, and a lot of times you'll see question marks or asterisks next to a particular date or a statement. And that's because it's a lot of times it's hard to produce any kind of hard evidence. And some of it is sure. word of mouth. You know, this person talked to so-and-so at Paisley and this is what they said. So, you know, take that, you know, take what you read with a grain of salt and that we've made our best effort to be as accurate as possible. And I've got some great sources. Obviously the knowledge I gained from Fritz has been exponential, you know, and it's been really hard to, to digest all of it. Yeah. Um. But, you know, we, you know, the the people that, that work on the wiki, have made a really, really hard effort to try to be accurate. Um, there was a lot of detailed stuff. I, I originally got involved with this because I wanted to collect Pisties. That's how I got involved with the wiki, and I wanted to learn more about the history and what would be an interesting symbol to, to buy, not necessarily for value, but more just I, I was really interested in their B8 history. Mm-hmm. So that's how I really got involved with the wiki, and it's I got sucked in, you know, totally. And it just was just a case of more and more and more. The more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And you know, it's fascinating, but the information is hard to come by, especially if you go back before the 70s and especially before the war. The information is virtually non existent. So,
0: yeah, that
1: said, I mean, virtually. Anything, especially when you're looking to try to date a symbol, it's really important with, with the, the prices people are asking now for symbols and a warning that there are people out there that are trying to sell, you know, lower level symbols. I've seen a few people will try to sell like nickel silver Ludwig standards and ask, you know, $350 for it. And it's no, this is, you know, a mid lower even entry level symbol and it's not worth $350. So sure. it's, it's important to understand what you're looking at and to date it and to know what model it was and, you know, it's intrinsic value and, are, you know, are you really willing to pay that much? But yeah. that being said, that is some of the, the incentive behind producing the wiki, you know, it's, it's education. So people understand, you know, what Pisces are, what, where they came from, how they got to where they are now, you know, it's, it's a rich history. Absolutely. And, fa- and a fascinating history.
0: Yeah, totally, which isn't over. Um, there's plenty of Peisty uh, to come. It's not going anywhere. So, yeah. All right. Well, again, thank you to everyone um, who we mentioned in the last episode. I mean, I guess real quick, we'd say, like, I think Steve Black, I believe you said Todd Little, right? Was yeah. a big help to you. Um, yeah. Fritz Steger, uh, Raphael Zimmerman. Um, let's see, Tim Shahady from Peisty, who talked to me a little bit at, at some of the shows and stuff. Um, and obviously, Dan, thank you very much. So uh, again, everyone, Dan Garza has been our amazing guest and uh, our our guide through the history of Paiste for this two-part mega episode. So um, Dan, thank you so much for doing this and just really taking all this time and effort and redoing things and finding stuff. It's just been amazing. So I I really appreciate you getting this Paiste history out in public and letting me be the way you you did it. Uh, I'm honored. So thank you for being here. Thank you.